Well, if you've been with us this month, you know that this Advent, we've been in a series that we've called The Advent Conspiracy. It's a series that focuses on a struggle that many of us have this time of the year. It's a tension between Santa and Scrooge, between those who love Christmas but sometimes forget about Jesus, and those who remember Jesus but are kind of upset, frustrated, annoyed by all the over-the-top celebrating that it makes them grumpy. So how do we reconnect with the true meaning of Christmas? And so this series is designed to get us to think about Christmas differently, to conspire to return Christmas to what it was meant to be. So we have talked about worshiping fully and spending less and giving more, and this week, loving all. Love's a word we throw around indiscriminately, so much so that it's almost lost its meaning. So we love chocolate and our new Prius, and this morning we love our down parkas, Um, We love our granite countertops and puppies and kittens and snowflakes. We love the first light of day and the full moon. We love football and ballet and Monet. Did you get how I rhymed those two? (laughs) Many of the things that we love come easily. Love for a child or for a mother or father, for a childhood best friend who's always just gotten us, for a grandparent or an inspirational teacher that we've never quite forgotten. But as we grow older, love can get more complicated. Love can hurt. Love can be hard. Love can be rejected. If we're lucky, we learn to love in ways that are more complex, that are both more demanding and rewarding at the same time. But not everything is easy to love, and not everyone is lovable. Years ago, I read a Peanuts comic strip where Linus confessed to Lucy, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. And then to be a more literary, a little more literary version of that, in Dostoevsky's classic novel, The Brothers Karamazov, he had, quote, had a character named Father Zosima say, the more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. And all of us have people in our lives that are difficult to love, people who are very different from us, people we don't understand and don't understand us, people who get under our skin those who don't like us and try as best they can to hurt us. So then we hear the words of the grown-up baby Jesus who says, love your neighbor as yourself, and then gave love the most broadest, um, inclusive meaning possible. Last week I quoted the most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16, and I quoted it because of the little phrase that says, God gave us his son, and we talked about how that is God's greatest gift and how that greatest gift, in turn, should inspire us to give more toward others. But this week, I want to look back at the verse for two other reasons, the why God did what he did, and secondly, who he did it for. So let's just look at the verse. And it begins with, for God so loved the world. So the why, the motivation for why God gave the great gift that he gave, is love, his love for all of humanity. And then the phrase we looked at last week, he gave his one and only son. And the point here that we made last week is that this is God's greatest gift. And then at the end, he says that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the who here is that Jesus not only loves humanity in general, but loves each one of us specifically. Now, I think it's probably evident to many of us that uh, the Christmas story is is woven throughout with this theme of love. Uh, The most uh, dramatic example of that is at the end of Luke's familiar telling of the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, Luke tells the story, and I want to begin reading with verse 4. And as I read, I want you particularly to pay attention to the second half of the story. Here's the way Luke begins. He says, So Joseph went up also from the town 
of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. In 1946, my grandfather bought a farm. Um, my grandfather had not been raised in a farming family, but he loved books about farmers and farming. And so he purchased 40 acres of marginal land about six miles west of Lawrence, Kansas, where he grew up and I grew up. And the whole episode turned into, by the way, a disaster in the end. But um, in the first few years, I don't think he did much with the land. And then when I went to high school, he decided that they were going to move out of town, sell their home, and move out to the farm. And so my grandmother worked out a, a deal. She got to build the home she wanted, and he got to build in the place where he wanted to live. So she built a city home on a farm lot, and uh, he began to farm. He planted a garden, he set up a beehive, he bought some chickens, he got a couple of goats that he named Peter and Clara, those of you that are Heidi fans. And the only productive thing that I ever remember coming out of that is a few Sunday chicken dinners. My grandfather had this romanticized image of farming, but didn't have the proper temperament or aptitude for being a successful farmer. But he did infect me a little bit with this idea that farming was somehow romantic. I think I read some of the same books he read, and so I had my own ideas. The summer between my sophomore and junior year in high school, I needed a job, and uh, there's a gentleman in our church, a farmer named Mr. Hurley. He heard that uh, I wanted to work. He needed some work done, so he came to me and said, how about if you come out and work on my farm? So um, I couldn't drive yet. We didn't have an extra car, so I rode my bike five miles out of town to work and five miles back every day. And I worked on the farm that summer, jumped at the chance. And so we spent the summer chasing calves, baling hay, helping with the maintenance around various buildings in and around the farm. And what I learned is that the reality of farming is not as exciting as the idealized images portrayed in books. Farming is hard work. I then began to realize why it was that my mother, who grew up on a farm, um, was determined as a teenager to do whatever she could to get off the farm. 
The summer I worked on Mr. Hurley's farm had some good moments, but it didn't make me anxious to be a farmer. And forever after, Mr. Hurley used to tell people that I went to college because of him. And he was partly right. You know, there's a stark contrast between the romanticized image of agrarian life and the everyday reality of farming. So we may talk in glowing terms about farming um, and farms and country life, but if any of our kids told us that they wanted to be a farmer, we would probably try to talk them out of it. In theory, we admire farmers, but real-life farmers don't always match the romantic images that we have in our heads. And you know, the same was true in first-century Palestine. This contrast isn't new. The Jews had a romantic image of shepherds. King David had been a shepherd. They compared the task of a king to being a good shepherd. They described the coming Messiah as a shepherd, and yet real-life shepherds were held in contempt. They smelled, they were intellectually, uh, the intellectual requirements were not high. They were regarded as dishonest and unreliable. And in a nation that valued religious purity, um, shepherds were considered unclean. They couldn't come in, they couldn't do all the things that were required of of, uh, pure people. Living out in the fields, they couldn't even keep the basic rules. And to add insult to injury, the life of a shepherd was extraordinarily difficult. Now, we often see pictures like the one you see on the screen with a shepherd and a few dozen sheep, but they had enormous flocks, thousands of sheep, and they required constant attention. Farmers lived in the, I mean, shepherds lived in the open air from early April to mid-November, enduring hot days and freezing nights. By the way, that's the reason we know Jesus was not born in December, December was one of those time periods, that short time period of the year when they were in town um, and living at home. Sheep are stupid animals. They run off. They get sick. The newborn lambs are helpless. And a random spook sheep can leave several hundred off um, for no good reason. And so shepherds slept lightly at night. They were aware that a hyena, a jackal, a wolf, or even a bear might be lurking in the shadows. It was difficult work for lousy pay with no professional respect. So there's a huge irony here that instead of taking the news to some political or religious elite, God sends an angel to a handful of low-class peasants. You can almost imagine President Obama making an important public policy announcement on the Jerry Springer show. So what happened? Well, if you were listening when we read the story, it's almost like something out of a Spielberg movie. An angel appears, and it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. You can imagine great light, um, bringing an incredible message. It's no wonder that they were initially very afraid. The angel tells them that just a few miles away, the promised Messiah has been born. And after they digest this, uh, the sky just fills with angels singing, praising God, and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now, what's the importance of all of this? Um, Some of you know that the Bible is selective in what it tells. John, in his biography of Jesus, says, we could just fill volume after volume after volume telling stories about Jesus, but I've had to be selective, and he tells what his purpose is. So some things are included and some are not. And historians do this all the time. Every biography has to choose what it tells about a great figure and what it chooses to leave out. So why is it that this particular story is left in? Why is it that it's included in the earliest account of the Christmas story? Well, it's an interesting story. It's dramatic. But other than that, why is it included? Why is it so important? Well, you could say, well, it's the special effects, you know, God was trying to impress everyone with his power and might. 
And that might be true, except that you, know, you can think of a lot of different ways he could have been more impressive. Like, for example, having the angel appear to a crowded marketplace in Jerusalem instead of on a Judean hillside in the middle of the night. You might also say, well, he's trying to get for a, kind of a, a low-cost advertising budget, get a little buzz going, you know, and can tell a few shepherds and off they go telling everyone else. But you've got to realize that shepherds didn't have a high status. So if he really wanted Buzz to get going, he would have told some kind of more important type people. Maybe they were righteous guys, and this was a reward for good behavior. Um, And that might be true, but again, it's probably not the point. I think the reason that the angel appeared to the shepherds is a reason that was important for them, and it's also important for us. And that is that Jesus is a savior for everyone, even shepherds. You know, their world was no different than ours. In our world, privileges go to the rich and famous. So if an angel was going to visit someone who was important, they'd pick the famous, the rich, those who had more status. So a visit from an angel was unexpected. In fact, it's we're told that those the shepherds told were amazed at their story. If an angel had visited the temple in Jerusalem, it would have made more sense. But the angel chose this ragtag group of richly impure field workers and gave them this important message. And it lets us know how important it was and how this changed their lives. Because what it told them is that God didn't care what you wore or what you did for a living, as long as you were willing to listen and believe. That the question of who was holy and pure needed to be asked in different ways. And as the angel said, unto you a Savior is born. The God, the one God sent someone who was for everyone, not just for the political or religious elite. It's a Savior for us. And that's where the story connects with us. Sometimes we feel like outsiders. Uh, There are people that seem to fit in this world really easily, people who have great career success and terrific families and financial prosperity. They have it all. And even spiritually, We see people who seem to know lots of religious trivia, uh, seem to be that they have an easy time being good when we struggle to follow Jesus. But the story of the shepherds reminds us that Jesus came for everyone, not just the religious elite. And so the news of Jesus' birth came to some working class guys that most of society looked down upon. And how did they respond? Well, it's interesting. At the very beginning, what they did is simply went to Bethlehem to see for themselves. So they didn't start posting on Facebook or putting photos on Snapchat. Instead, they went to Bethlehem to see. And it appears that they didn't fall uh, to either of two extremes, either gullibility or skepticism. But they were open-minded and hurried off to see for themselves. Later, Jesus would say that his disciples were those who seek and find. And he could have been talking about these shepherds who went to look to see for themselves. And when they saw what they saw, it says that they spread the word. This is when they started tweeting and doing all of those kinds of things. They couldn't keep the good news to themselves. They wanted everyone else to know. Now, at Christmas time, uh, some of us do something that we will never quite re- admit, and that is regifting. Um, and so uh, let me just tell you my own regifting story. About six years ago, it was summer, uh, we had an office over on France Avenue in a house, and um, uh, there was a, f- a couple who had been attending City Church for about a month or so, and they called me up and said, hey, you know, you have any time to meet with us? And I said, sure, you know, when would you like to meet? And they said, well, how about now? And uh, they showed up two minutes later in the office, and um, they asked a lot of questions, probably a conversation of an hour or more. And then at the end of the conversation, the husband said to me, um, 
I've got something for you. And he had a paper bag, and he opened it up, and uh, he handed me a leather bag that looks something like the one you see on the screen. He told me that God had told him that morning to give this bag to me. It's a messenger bag. I had a briefcase I was pretty happy with. A few weeks later, I even tried to use this bag. It didn't hold very much, so I just left it in the corner of my office for about six months. It was December, and it was a Saturday. I wasn't quite done with my sermon, so I'd gone into the office. I was trying to finish it up, and uh, we had dinner that evening with a group of friends we'd been getting together with a few times a year for now over 25 years. And Kathy uh, called me up, and she said, hey, remember, it's White Elephant Gift tonight. Do you have anything? And I said, I don't think so. I said, do you have anything at home that I could give? And she said, no. She said, why don't you just look around the office and find something? And that's when I looked into the corner and I saw this bag. I thought, okay, that's it. And um, I was a little, felt a little guilty because after all, God had given it to me. But um, (laughs) so I I went back in a back room, a storage area, and I found a box. And then I took some craft paper from the children's craft area and I wrapped it up really hurriedly. And um, about an hour later, I'd finished the sermon. I put the box in the car, went by and picked up Kathy at home on the way, way to the party. Um, at the end of dinner, we all gathered in the living room of the home that we were in and started this white elephant gift exchange. And I really don't remember any of the other presents, although they probably included a really, really bad Christmas sweater and maybe an ornament that played the 12 days of Christmas or something like that. Um, and that's when a friend of ours named Chris uh, took the box that I had wrapped uh, so uh, carefully, and she opened it, and she took out this bag, and she said, this leather bag, and she said, uh, is this a joke? I said, no, no, it's just something I had lying around in the office. And she said, do you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a leather bag. Um, And she said, no, this isn't just any leather bag. This is a coach bag. (laughs) Now, she may have noticed the blank look on my face because she almost immediately added, don't you know, these sell for between $450 and $600. Now it was my turn to say, wow, because I, I really did have no idea. I knew I wouldn't pay $500 for a bag that didn't hold very much. Um, But Chris said, you know, I can't take this from you. And I said, well, you know, it's not doing anything for me. And so finally we came up with a plan, and that was that I would put it um, for auction on eBay the next week, and the proceeds would then go to the women in this uh, little supper club um, so they could go out to dinner. So I sold it for $275. They had a very nice dinner um, the next uh, couple of months after that. Now, you know, when you hear a story about regifting, you think, what a thoughtless way to get rid of things that we don't want. But it can also be the most thoughtful thing that we can do, because if we have something of great value that we can then give away, we should give it away. We should share it. What the shepherds saw that first Christmas day, they spread to all they knew. And we can do the same thing. When we experience something of God's presence, whether there are angels there or not, we can share it with others. It says that they then returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. Now, what he's describing, Luke is describing here, is what Devin talked about the very first week of this series, that we can worship fully. And that's what they did. Now, they didn't spend the rest of their lives hanging around this stable. They returned to their jobs, to their homes, and to their families. But they were not the same people. They'd been changed by this experience that they had had, first with the angel and then changed by seeing Jesus. They were new people who went back to an old situation. You know, if you hear the story this way, it may be a little less difficult to see how radical the story of Christmas really is. 
It's so familiar sometimes that we fail to see the dramatic contrast that Luke makes in his version of the Christmas story. Now, I intentionally skipped over a couple of verses at the beginning of Luke chapter 2 that I want to read now because they set a context that I think portrays the contrast even more so. And it's the verses 1 and 2 where it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, if you read any old Roman history, you know that Caesars were considered almost divine. Augustus led the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. Roman temples were lavishly ornamented. The army controlled much, if not most, of the ancient world. Within 100 years of Jesus' birth, they had conquered Jerusalem, had reduced the city to rubble. Caesar's power was absolute. So what Luke is doing is setting the context for this story in a geopolitical setting. By contrast, nothing could have seemed more insignificant than the birth of a baby in an out-of-the-way place to a teenage mother under dubious circumstances. Nothing more improbable than the choice of a handful of ordinary shepherds to be the first witnesses of the birth, the one the angel said would be their savior. So this story radically flips the equation of power in history. Instead of appearing to the powerful and the connected, the angel here announced Jesus' birth to the poor, to the humble, and to the powerless. The real miracle of Christmas is that God so loved the world, and not just in general, but in specific. He loves each one of us. Rich and poor, black and white, male and female, young and old, Jesus breaks down barriers that have existed since the beginning of human history. In Jesus, love came down and lived among us. And we, in turn, are then freed to love all in return. It's God's love for us that enables us to love all. It is God's love that changes us. It turns our attention from ourselves to others, to reach out in love to those we might normally overlook. God loves the lovable and the unlovable. It isn't a love reserved for one group of people or one kind of person. God loves the CEO as much as he loves someone who's unemployed. He loves teachers and doctors and lawyers and addicts and gamblers and thieves. He loves in ways that we will probably never be able to quite imagine. And he loves us not only that we can keep that love to ourselves, but that we can share it with others. Love all is the final invitation that we have for you this Christmas season, to worship freely, spend less, give more, and love all. Is it easy? No. Is it risky? Yes. Is it complicated? Probably. Will it take us places that we'd rather not go? Will it require something of us? Yes, it will. And it will change us. It will change us into a different sort of person, people who care about all of humanity, not just those who are easy to love. The good news is that the message that the angels brought to those shepherds is the same message that he brings to us this Christmas. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent us a Savior who is for everyone, not just for some, not just for those who somehow uh, fit in, but for all of us, whether we fit in or not. Father, we thank you that... Uh, you made a decision, made a decision to announce the birth of Jesus to some ordinary people, people we even might shun 
for one reason or another. Father, we thank you that you have sent a Savior for us, not just in general, but specifically for each one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.